Miracy. There's a ton of options out there, and just the fact that he's been able to carve out his own niche is it's pretty inspiring, right? It, it means that there's still a huge opportunity for the independent course creator, even if it feels like the world is very saturated. Hello, and welcome to Course Lab, the show that teaches course creators like you how to make better online courses. I'm Danny Eney, founder and CEO of Miracy, and I'm here with my co-host, Abe Crystal, the co-founder of Rizuku. Hi, Danny. Hey, Abe. So in each episode of Course Lab, we showcase a course and course creator who is doing something really interesting with their course. Our guest today is Trevor Page. Trevor is the director and content creator for Coders Campus, a digital giant which teaches every level of the programming language Java. Trevor, we're excited to have you on the show. Pleased to be here. So let's start at 30,000 feet. Who are you? What do you do? How did you come to be doing it? And how did you make your way to online courses? Yeah, so I got my start as a coder, started working professionally, you know, got the degree, started, you know, doing the job, that kind of thing. Realized I had a bit of a knack for teaching when my teammates below me that I was mentoring got up to speed very quickly. My managers took notice that the junior programmers on my team got up and running very quickly and they were wondering what it was about my team. And I had no idea at the time that I was actually a decent teacher. So then I decided, hey, you know, I'm a bit entrepreneurial. Why don't I try to start a blog and teach people how to code from the blog? That eventually evolved into podcasting and then YouTubing and then online courses and eBooks and the journey had begun. So is your target student someone who has no coding experience? Are you taking beginners and making them more proficient? Yeah, so I kind of do both. They sort of fall into three avatars. One, we call him Graduate Greg. He is someone who has done a degree as a some sort of computer science or related degree. And sadly, even though you have a computer science degree, it can still be challenging to launch your career and find a job. So oftentimes we help those avatars to you know transition into a career as a coder. The second avatar we serve is someone we call IT Ivan. So IT Ivan is someone who works alongside developers and coders. They are doing DevOps, they are doing QA, they are doing some sort of maybe management, and they see the developers and the coders and they say, hey, I want to be one of them. So they'll transition and they work well in the bootcamp. And then finally, these are people who are tired of their career. That's a third avatar. This is Career Change Carry. Career Change Carry is someone who works doing landscaping and their back hurts now and they can't take it anymore or they are working just in a completely unrelated field and they start to dabble in coding and feel like they like it and want to continue and pursue it. Cool. So if one of these people discovers your bootcamp, signs up, what are they paying first of all? And then what do they get? So the tuition for ours is 9,800 US, which is actually fairly competitive for our marketplace. What they get is, like I said, a very immersive, very hands-on, very intensive experience. It lasts about six months. And the main thing they get is tons and tons and tons of support, either one-on-one support, group coaching support, Slack support, obviously support through a curriculum that I have created that I know will help them to succeed in their achieving their goal of getting a job. We have you know daily calls and check-ins. We have a whole career services aspect at the end once they've done the curriculum, done the assignments, done their sort of final project. We have a whole career services package to look over their LinkedIn profile, to match them with a recruiter, 
to test them on their interviewing skills, prepare them for the whole interviewing process with you know resume writing help. I paired up with someone from Google whose job was to hire technical talent for Google. She had created a whole course on how to you know make a resume that stands out. So it's just nonstop support around not only teaching them how to code, but also how to succeed in getting the job and, and having a successful career. That sounds very cool and also very labor intensive yes. for you as the person delivering it. Can you, can you talk a little bit about both the effort and person hours that go into fulfilling this? And you, know, you mentioned the price is $9,800. How many people come into a cohort? Like, are we talking about two, three people or 10, 20? Or I'm trying on behalf of the listener to get a sense of like how much money is coming in the door and then what does it cost in terms of time and money to create these experiences and transformations for them? So my father, who works with me as my sort of CFO, prepared me for this question and he said, Trevor, make sure you have your numbers ready for Danny. So I have my numbers. So when we started the boot camp in 2019, uh, the launch uh, was from, I think we launched in like late 2019. So we pulled in about 34,000 in revenue which was great. So that was on the order of five to 10 people per cohort. In 2020, we had the full year to take advantage of. We hit 75,000 in revenue, but that was still on the order of five to 10 people per cohort. And I think we did three or four cohorts in 2020. Now, 2021 has been a much better year. I brought in a business partner, someone who is the yin to my yang. He is good at all the things that I am not and vice versa. So we've doubled since last year. So we have currently made about 145,000. And now we are pulling in between, I would say on the order of 15 to 20 people per cohort. And we have another about 220,000 in revenue that's to be collected. And that's through a different payment structure that we could talk more about called an income share agreement. Essentially, the cost to support every student currently is around 2,500 of that. 10,000 ish, that's about 25% goes towards supporting each student throughout the whole six month process. That does not include the cost to acquire the customer. That has been really widely varying, and we're trying to dial in that one. That's anywhere from $1,000 to $5,000, which I know is a big range, especially when you're only making $10,000. So we're getting it closer to the $1,000 mark at the moment. But basically, my staff is it's me. I have sort of a lead instructor who wears a lot of the same hats that I do as an educator. I have three people who are on staff to review the assignments. So it's very important in our industry as as coders that you get feedback when you're learning through assignments. We have people reviewing their assignments line by line and giving personalized feedback. So I have three people doing that. I have a business partner who's in the trenches with me every day making decisions. And my father, who's a CFO, holding down the financing side of this entire endeavor. Cool. And I have a question about the nature of the support. So writing code can be quite formulaic when it works, right? So, you know, you review the code, you give people feedback, it's all good. But what often happens as a coder, at least my understanding is, you know, you write all the code, you hit compile, something doesn't work, and then you're in troubleshooting, you know, where is the error? What's the issue? How much, comparatively speaking, are your support staff spending time looking at code and giving proactive feedback? And how much of it is Let's troubleshoot and help you figure out what didn't work. You know what's interesting? And this is something I did not anticipate when I first launched the bootcamp in 2019. The problems I thought I had with teaching are not the ones that I have been solving all along. 
So in terms of teaching people how to code, it's actually not too bad. People usually are able to figure out the problems themselves. They're able to articulate a question well enough to be able to post it in Slack or ask me on a live call, get the support and move on. Those people are not the problem. The people who I find struggle the most are the people who have trouble with communication. They have trouble articulating the problem that's in front of them. Just knowing to say, oh, I have a compilation error with my code, as you alluded to, or trying to find out and explain where the problem is happening. Often the the words I hear are, oh, my code doesn't work. And it's like, okay, sure. So I need to dig in there. And can you elaborate what you mean by my code doesn't work? Because there's just so many aspects to the code working that could go wrong that I need more clarity there. And the other thing that I struggle with from, with my students is motivation. I can tell almost within the first week who is going to make it and who is not. And those are the people who show up and attend the calls, the live calls, who are enthusiastic, who you know have those just, you would think everyone would show up and be enthusiastic, but that's just not the case. And I'm really struggling with you know the 20% of the students who I just can't motivate them to do the work. They get in their head about it. There's like a whole different, it's like I need a therapist or something. I need like a life coach to come in on staff and to be able to just solve the underlying problem of motivation first. And then I feel like I could help them be coders. So I didn't anticipate this as a problem, but it's really interesting what you run into when you have this kind of level of support included in these products. So is there also a difference between intrinsic versus extrinsic motivation? So intrinsic being motivated by you know, desire to or curiosity right? Like thinking coding is an interesting problem to solve versus extrinsic of, you know, wanting to get a high paying developer job, basically. I'll give you one example. I have one person who I was sure was going to be motivated more than anyone I'd ever taught in my entire life. And and I would have bet the farm on their success. And it turns out they were probably one of my most problematic students. So the sales call I had with them was one of Trevor. I'm going to do this. I'm going to do this because there's no other choice. I've hit the rock bottom. I'm ready to kick butt. I'm ready to do this. Let's go. I'm excited to have you as my teacher. And I thought, oh my God, this is perfect. This guy's going to succeed. He's going to be a great story. He's been my toughest student. I can't motivate the guy. So I don't know how to find out before that first week or two, who's going to really show up and do well and who is not. So hopefully that is something that I will get more clarity on as we move forward. I mean, if you found that the community aspect of the bootcamp helps with people whose motivation is flagging, like what role does community play? So community, this is part of our daily call. So we have our daily check-ins where you know everyone is welcome, no matter the, the cohort, jump in on any day of the week and do a check-in. In the real world, we call it a stand-up where you stand up with your team and you talk a little bit about what you did yesterday, what you're working on today, and if there's any blockers stopping you from moving forward. These sort of check-in calls allow us to get a pulse on all the students. But what we're seeing is while that helps at the beginning, as soon as people start to fall behind in deadlines and whatnot, they start to shy away from attending the calls because, and I've spoken with them and gotten clarity on it, they feel embarrassed that they're behind and they feel like, they are holding everyone else back by being on the call. So my idea was, well, let's just mix all the bootcamp cohorts. So that way, even if you are behind, it doesn't matter. There's a bunch, there's probably a brand new group that just started. They are all in exactly the same spot that you are. But again, my hypothesis didn't uh, 
rather my solution I thought would work didn't work. They're still too embarrassed to show up. So I still need to solve this problem. Currently, I think this is one of my biggest problems. That's why I'm talking about it so much. How do you motivate those 20% of the people who need the most support? We appreciate your openness and vulnerability to explore that on the podcast. Thank you. Well, I mean, I'd be curious to hear more like what is your current thinking in terms of where you might go in, in addressing those types of students and their challenges in the future? Hopefully, you know, a year from now, this is going to be far less of an issue. But the first thought we had was, okay, if they're sort of embarrassed to show up, if they're embarrassed to say, hold everyone back in a certain group, well, why don't we create a group of people who are all in the same spot? If you're all struggling and you're all have fallen behind, maybe that will help remove the fear of holding anyone else back because, hey, you're all behind, right? You're all in the same group and, you know, you can all commiserate together, that community aspect, right? I don't know if that's going to work, but we're giving that a shot. We've been trying to do lots of one-on-one meetings with these people. But again, it's you have a great one-on-one call and they seem positive and they thank you and that, you know, but it doesn't make much difference. It doesn't really move the needle. So another thing that we've done is, okay, they're getting stuck, right? They're getting stuck and they don't know how to ask for help. So maybe we're going to do a whole separate course for the bootcamp members on one how to properly dial in on what your problem is. So how do you figure out what is my actual problem? And two, how do I actually ask a question and ask for help that will allow me to get unstuck on the problem that I'm now able to point out? Because if you don't know what your problem is, how the heck are you going to solve it? So that's an idea there. And then above and beyond that, the more bootcamp specific or programming specific content in there will be, hey, here's how you think like a coder. Here's how like a meta approach to not just here's how to code, but here's how to think like a coder. Here's the processes that you can try, the repeatable systems that you can put into place that will hopefully help you to solve coding problems. That is sprinkled throughout the course, but I want to pull those gems out and put them all in one place that everyone can refer back to. Again, these are the ideas. We'll see how they play out in the coming months. Yeah, it's all sound really, really interesting. I guess the other thought that comes to mind is some courses use more of a like peer or alumni mentoring type structure where you have people who kind of share the same perspective. So being able to get help from someone who's going through the same challenges as you can sometimes unlock a different feeling than being helped by an instructor who's way ahead of you in skill level and experience. Yeah. So the other thing that we've put into place, but again, it's an attendance issue, is we've implemented a study hall. So study hall being just a student attended and student led, no instructors welcome type meeting every Saturday. So Saturday for a couple hours, they can all get together and commiserate and and work together. That has had some momentum, some success. You know, I've heard some good things from from those meetings, but not a huge amount. Again, in terms of the 20% who are struggling, maybe that specifically helps 10% of the 20%. Interesting. One other question I had was about just that boot camps have become a big business with some very big brands out there, and you're able to attract clients to yours being, despite being a small fish in a big pond. So just curious for other course creators who are in a similar position where they're working on a topic with big established players, how have you thought about that or how have you carved out a niche for yourself given the sort of large competition out there? So also great question. One thing that I've noticed that I've been told is when I'm talking about the boot camp or when I'm talking about code in general to a student or, or a group of students, 
my love for coding comes through and they pick up on that very quickly. To me, it's just, I'm talking about code. This is cool. I like this. Let's do this. But to them, they see the passion, the real passion. They see the love. They see that this is all consuming for me. This is my thing. This is what I've dedicated my life to. And they really, it inspires them. And they, and they say, wow, like, I want to be like that guy, right? So I think that really helps to, in terms of a pure sales conversation, that definitely helps to convert sales. That's what my business partner that I brought in this year has said to me is, oh my God, Trevor, do you understand how this comes off when you talk about it? Do you understand the passion that comes? Like, do you? I said, I never knew. No, I didn't know that. So that's one aspect that at least once I get them on a sales call helps, but a more tangible action item for the listeners is I have a podcast. I've been podcasting for since 2012, 2013. And in that time, the podcast has, without any help from me, grown to be a fairly substantially sized podcast. I'm approaching, I think, 2 million downloads. I think I'm the number one in Spotify when you, you know, search for the word Java, I show up first. So that podcast helps to introduce myself with this passion to a very large group of listeners. And it's one of our biggest, what you call it, you know, when you look at our pie chart in terms of sales, where the sales come from, I think the podcast is the number two outside of just regular old paid advertising. Very cool. Trevor, can you tell us a little bit about the income share agreements? You touched on it briefly, but I'd love to hear more. First of all, for people who don't know what that is, what are they and how are they structured and how long have you been doing it? How's it been working? The way it works is the student puts down a small deposit, small comparatively based on the tuition. It usually is about 5 to 10% of the tuition they put down as a deposit to have skin in the game. The student needs skin in the game uh, in some way, shape, or form. We do that with this deposit. After that, they pay nothing. So they pay nothing. They're able to take the entire boot camp. They get all the education, all the support, all the everything. Nothing is held back. Everything is given to them. And once they graduate and then have some sort of employment, then they start to make payments back towards the tuition. And these things called income share agreements are usually managed by a third party. So there's usually a company that provides this as a service. I think we interviewed 14 different companies before we found one that matched with our core values. So it was not an easy process, but we are thrilled with them. We've been using them since I think our June 2021 cohort for three months. So this is fairly new. This has been introduced. So essentially in the last three months is where we've generated almost 300 and some odd thousand in revenue from income share agreements and being able to offer them to student. So the students love them because we essentially don't get paid unless they get paid. And the goal of the bootcamp is to get them a job as a coder. So our values and our goals together are very much in alignment. If I can't do it, if I can't get them a job, I don't get paid. So Students love it. And I love it too, because that's all I ever wanted to do from the beginning is help teach people how to code and get them into these successful careers. Because me, I've been able to benefit from a career as a coder, which I always say has completely spoiled me. Programmers, if anyone is a programmer and listening, they know we're spoiled with the opportunities, the job opportunities, job security, the salaries, the perks, benefits, the vacation. It's just, we are absolutely spoiled. And I want to give that as a gift to people who are struggling with finding employment that they like. 
But yeah, big hack is find a way to help your students to finance it themselves if you're selling a high ticket item because it's really worked for us. Very cool. Thanks for sharing that. Thanks a bunch, Trevor. Cool. Happy to help. Abe, do you want to do the readout? Trevor Page is a programming savant who's been churning out Java coders since opening his Coders campus. You can and should learn more about him on his site, coderscampus.com. That's coderscampus.com. And the introduction to Java course is completely free, by the way. Yeah, so why not check it out? Now stick around for my favorite part of the show, where Abe and I will pull out the best takeaways for you to apply to your course. So Abe, what jumped out to you? I guess there's kind of two different themes to talk about. I mean, one around the business model and how this course is positioned and marketed and sold, which are all pretty interesting. And then secondly, the challenges and the opportunities around helping people progress through an especially rigorous and challenging program that focuses on much deeper skill development than a lot of online programs do. I mean, on on the business side, you know, a couple of things that were interesting to me were, first of all, just that this offering works, right? It's pretty cool that he's able to build this sort of, you know, indie business, you know, under his own uh, small brand that's driven by his personality and his enthusiasm and love of coding that is succeeding in a world where people have the option to take boot camps from some of the biggest, most famous universities in the world, from multi-million dollar companies, from venture-funded startups. Like there's a ton of options out there. And just the fact that he's been able to carve out his own niche is, is pretty inspiring, right? And it means that there's still a huge opportunity for the independent course creator, even if it feels like the world is very saturated. Yeah, I agree. And I thought in terms of some of the specifics of the business model structure, the, the breakdown of, you know, he spends $2,500 to support the student and create that great experience and transformation, which sounds very involved, very hands-on. He's spending between one and $5,000 to acquire the customer, which is not unusual. Those are not crazy high numbers. And he's able to do that. He's able to make that whole structure work because he's charging an amount of money that, yes, is competitive in the industry and you have to be competitive in your industry. But it's also large enough to allow those margins. That's a big part of why, I mean, you and I are both really proponents of, you know, as much as possible, look at being a premium offering, not in a sense of, you know, you want to gouge customers or be disproportionately expensive in a market, but finding a way to create enough value to justify a price point that gives you the margins to build a business that actually works. Yeah. And that's often lost in the excitement around, you know, just sort of, teaching what you are passionate about, which is important, but it needs to be balanced by thinking through that model. Well, and also the mission that a lot of people have around making information accessible. That's something that brings people to online courses very often. And I thought the income share agreement was a very bold, but also very elegant solution to that. You know, it makes the program accessible to a lot more people while also creating a lot more accountability for you, the person delivering the program to, you know, I've got to get people results because otherwise I'm not getting paid. Right? It's a gutsy move, but if you 
are willing to take that chance and go through whatever challenges are involved to make sure, okay, yes, the program actually works and I'm delivering, it suddenly creates a lot of opportunity as Trevor has experienced. And that ties into the motivation piece, right? Because that type of model is just not going to work if people aren't completing the courses and, and also getting good paying jobs afterwards. So Ray, he's like, he was taking on a big task here. You know, programming is hard. And to get people to spend, you know, months focused on it and really mastering this difficult subject, you know, it's very easy to, like, we've talked many times about how easy it is for people to get off track in general in online courses. And that's typically on topics that are not nearly as difficult to learn as programming is. Well, and he's not even just teaching programming as much as a lot of this is programming. This is really about the broader skill set of not just being a skilled programmer, but being an employable programmer, which is, you know, there's more to it than that. Yeah, for sure. I mean, I thought one of the, the really interesting things he was raising is that it's not just about learning Java per se, right? Or any programming language. It's about becoming better at problem solving and at thinking things through, like to create clarity out of ambiguity, essentially, almost learning different forms of analysis and ways to bring mental models and frameworks to bear on problems, which is kind of a much deeper skill than programming might seem at first. Yeah. So what was interesting to me was, I mean, first of all, just again, giving Trevor credit where credit is due, really thinking about this whole endeavor in a scientific, experimental, exploratory way. He even mentioned the word hypothesis a few times. My hypothesis as to what's causing and what will solve it is this. Turned out not to be right in certain cases or right in other cases, but really approaching it like a scientist. And, you know, hats off to that because that's how we really have to approach this sort of endeavor. What occurred to me, though, is that when you have adherence and compliance challenges in your course, you know, people are signing up, but they're not making it all the way through. The tools that a lot of course creators automatically go to are tools of motivation. Right. You know, how can I incentivize them more? How can I gamify the experience? How can I make it more exciting? How can I add life coaching? Whatever it takes to add motivation. And I think we do that because we assume, well, if you wanted to learn this, you signed up, you want to learn this. So, you know, obviously this is what you've committed to. It's important to you. And the subject matter can't be the problem right? The subject matter, the learning experience can't be the problem because as the expert who put it together, I'm looking at it and I'm like, yeah, this is easy. This all makes sense, right? You know, curse of knowledge type stuff. But, you know, if you look at BJ Fogg's work around driving behavior change, right? There's an interesting relationship between motivation and ability, right? If something is hard for you to do, you know, motivation can push you to try a little harder, but motivation only empowers you to do to the best of your ability what you're already capable of doing, right? Motivation doesn't empower us to do things we don't know how to do. And so probably an area of opportunity for Trevor, and I would say for many course creators, is to really go deeper in the analysis. You know, he's identifying that students are dropping off from attending calls, for example, right? And so he's saying, well, why is that? They feel behind, they feel stuck. And there's a lot of like, how do we get them back on the calls? How do we get them to move forward? I guess they must not be motivated, but there could be an opportunity to dig into what are they struggling with? What is not clear? What am I asking them to do that is difficult for them to do? And what is making it difficult? Is it difficult logistically? Is it difficult cognitively? Is it difficult emotionally? 
often there's a lot of opportunity there. And the flip side of all that is that, you know, often we fixate too much on the minority of students who are not doing well. You know, he mentioned that it's maybe 20% of students who are stuck in this way, 80% who are successful. And often the best way to bring success to those 20% is to look at what are the behaviors being exhibited by the successful 80%, looking for the bright spots, as it were, and saying, well, how can we bring that to the people who are struggling? Yeah, that was going to be exactly my thought to you is, you know, it's great that he's going out and doing calls with the 20% who are struggling. Now do the same thing with the 80% that are succeeding and see how to bring those insights home as well. Cool. So do you want to read us out? Okay. Thank you for listening to Course Lab. I'm Abe Crystal, co-founder and CEO of Rizuku, here with Dan Eaney, founder and CEO of Miracy. Course Lab is part of the Miracy FM network, which also includes Just Between Coaches and Making It. This episode of Course Lab was produced by Cynthia Lamb. Jeff Governton assembled the episode. Danny Eaney is our executive producer. Biggest thanks to Trevor Page for coming onto the show today. You can find out more about his programming course and even try out his free one at coderscampus.com. That's coderscampus.com. To make sure you don't miss the really great episodes coming up on Course Lab, follow us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you're listening right now. And if you like the show, please leave us a starred review. It's the best way to help us get these ideas to more people. Thank you, and we'll see you next time. All right, are you ready? Wait, what's my cue? It's a behind-the-scenes kind of thing. Hello, and welcome to Just Between Coaches, the podcast that tackles difficult coaching conversations head on. I'm Melinda Cohen, and your host for this show. I also know that I'm listening when, again, my mind is relaxed. So I can almost sense that I'm listening on multiple levels. That's a great framing. That's a, that's a really great way to think about it. Um, I think so, actually, now that I'm thinking about it, because I think that something that is very dangerous is for people to think that being a great coach comes from having the credentials. One has nothing to do with the other. So again, part of it is just, you know, either through questions or asking what they've tried, or sometimes it's, you know, the forest for the trees thing. My favorite part of having the hard conversation is... Wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. Okay, so while I love what's on the other side, I think navigating through that conversation is my favorite part. Yeah, because we're not there necessarily as coaches to provide solutions. We're there to guide our people towards solutions. And I don't know if it's, you know, societal pressure or peer pressure, but we don't want to look like we don't know what we're doing. I want to help and support coaches so that they can evolve into their greatness. My desire for the show is if I could scoop up all of the coaches and bring them into my living room and bring up the topics that leave crinkles in our forehead so that we can fully understand what it means to show up in our greatness, fully confident so that we can build better businesses, so that we can be better coaches, so that we can make a lasting impact on this world collectively. And we want to rise to that level. That being said, 
you do want to set yourself up and your clients up for success by making sure that there is clarity around their expectations and your expectations as to how you can help them. People have to know a little bit about what you offer. Otherwise, how do they know that they need what you can help them with in terms of that transformation? And I love having the conversations and navigating the topics that keep us at the forefront in a time with what I call the results revolution. Yeah, well, first of all, I just want to start by saying that this is a really good problem to have, right? So if you have someone who's resisting your price, it means they're really interested in working with you. The thing is, sometimes it becomes negative. It becomes toxic. I've been in the coaching industry for almost 20 years now. And over these years, I have seen everything behind the scenes in our industry, everything that works, everything that doesn't work. I've seen the evolution of our industry and of what it means to be a coach. I just want to say to all the coaches out there, you know, matching who you are to the kind of coach that you want to be is just a practice. Do you want to add some parting words? No, I think you did great. This was a lot of fun. Thank you so much for having me. This is Melinda Cohen, and you've been listening to Just Between Coaches. You'll find us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. Yeah, this is absolutely the tone, the feel, the everything. Okay, so I'm going to stop the recording now. <laughs> Why are you stopping the recording? <laughs> this is going to be fun. <laughs> oh my gosh. That's a wrap. That is going to be an amazing session.